Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it's producer Matt. Just giving you a quick heads up. The first maybe five to 10 minutes of this episode, our guest's audio is a little off. We were able to fix it. Just hang tight with us. Thank you so much. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out weknowpodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. This week, we're joined by the OG Reaper to discuss our own individual takes on how we define love and how it manifests itself in our daily lives. From the enduring bond between a mother and child to the red-hot passion of a new romantic interest, we open up and have a true heart-to-heart-to-heart on what love means to us. Just kidding, we're talking about Hathaway and the song that you most likely know from the Saturday Night Live sketches. One hit is all you need To make the money guaranteed Live off royalties forever And it makes me wonder Is it just a wonder Or is it one hit thunder Alright guys, so we're gathered here today To ask the big question, the most important question What is love? What, what, what do you guys think? What is love? That's the, we gotta get that out of the way before we get into Hathaway that's scary. What <laughs> is love? I think everybody is still trying to figure out love. I talked to my grandpa, and my grandpa has a love-hate relationship with, with my grandma. He keep her. He, he loves her. But, yeah, love is, I guess, a perception. What you <laughs> What do you think, Matt? What is love, man? <laughs> uh, I mean, I would be someone who would be accused of throwing love around too much. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, love, I love people. I love ideas. But I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a, a, a strong passion of approval. Well, the dictionary definition of it is an intense feeling of deep affection. 
And in preparation for this episode, I watched a lot of Hathaway interviews. And <laughs> I guess he made note of the fact that's always what people ask him first in interviews. And uh, which is why I asked you guys that first. He said the answer, what he tells the people that interview him is the answer is right there. It's in the song. And the only thing I could figure out that he meant by that is baby don't hurt me. I, I couldn't figure <laughs> out like, I couldn't figure out like what he meant. And he's like, oh, it's right there. I'm like, hmm. uh, hold on, let's analyze. I, I mean, normally we do this in the middle of the show, but I think it's time to analyze lyrics because I think we've talked about this before. Meatloaf's I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. The song says what the that is when you read the verses because it'll talk about like all the things that he'll do and then he'll say one thing that he wouldn't do. But like the thing that he wouldn't do is usually something like forget you. You know what I mean? Like I'll do anything for love, but I won't forget you. And then like the next verse, it's like something else that like he won't do. So I have a feeling because I'll say this right now. The verses in this song are actually kind of fire. I I couldn't tell you what the lyrics are off the top of my head, but I like the melody of how they're sung. I bet you the answer to what is love is hidden in those verses. I never thought about it. Maybe what is love, like I'm asking you guys, what's the definition of love? But maybe he's saying it considering, you know, this is in, actually, he, I forget where he was originally from, but I, he was very popular in Europe. So saying what is love could be taken in a different way. Like what's the deal with love? Why love? Why do we want love? It could, it might not be like, what is love? It could be like, what, why, why do I want love? Because it just, it just ends in, in heartbreak in hurt. That could be the answer. I want to, I want to throw another theory out there, which is that he's just skirting around the question. Cause he didn't actually write the song. <laughs> well, he wrote, I, Matt, where are you getting this information that he didn't write the song? I thought that the song was written by German producers Didi Halligan and Junior Toloro. Well, what I saw was, yeah, those guys, I think that maybe the beat and, gotcha. and the background okay. music, but I think Hadaway wrote the melodies and the lyrics because about the recording, he said, we just use ideas that were fresh at the time. I had the idea for the melodies in about 45 minutes. And the total structure of the song was done in about a day and a half. I do believe Hathaway was involved in the writing of this song. Well, I mean, I feel like the only real way to get to the bottom of this is, Chris, you're going to have to book Hathaway on the Krista Makes a Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and and he'll he'll really break it down for us. But yeah. uh, I mean, I think that's fair. I'm sure it was a collaboration between the producers and him. And if he's the one that came up with the melodies, like, again, the beat is great. I'm not going to take away from the fact that the beat is great. But the beat would have been buried and forgotten amongst all of the other 90s Euro pop. But it's that melody of the chorus and the verses that makes people still remember this song almost 30 years since it's been released. His voice, his voices and his melodies. And I remember he said in an interview that originally he didn't want to sing the song or something like that. And the label, it was a label. He did it for a friend and it, he recorded it like it was a demo. He wrote the lyrics, recorded it like a demo, and then... They was like, you might as well just do it. Yeah, Hathaway just wanted to be a producer at this time. And his friend was working at a record label, I guess, Coconut Records in Germany. And he needed to pay the bills. So they made What Is Love to try to like pay the bills. At first, this song was kind of shut down by every radio station. No one wanted to play it. And then one radio station used it as a jingle. 
and then it caught on. The single sold 30 million copies. He wasn't even intending to be an artist and had this such an enormous hit. I will say when I was doing research, my favorite thing about Hathaway is that his debut album was just called The Album. My favorite thing about this, Matt, was that we're calling this a one-hit wonder, which, yeah, Hathaway's a one-hit wonder to us. But the dude has not only a hit collection volume one and a hit collection volume two, but also an all the best, his greatest hits album. The dude has three greatest hits collections and we're calling him a one hit wonder. So I don't know. We started talking about Hathaway and I did some research and I'm like, yo, this guy got, of course, one of what is love is powerful, but he got some powerful tracks that were singles, you know? And, and one thing I like about his voice is, he he gave me a blend of a mixture of Seal and Bowie kind of. That, yeah. that he has a powerful voice, but you can hear him in it. And then when he names his influences, I'm like, I can hear the influences. And what I was surprised is he never mentioned Bowie. And I'm like, he got, he's in that range where it's real strong, powerful vocals like a Seal. I think I may have watched one of the same interviews as you did. I... Gotta say that I came into this thinking that I was gonna, I don't know, make fun of the song, make fun of the guy, watch the interview with him and watch live performances. And I'm like, oh, this guy is for real. He's very down to earth, humble, very cool, talented. And yeah, he has a ton of hits in Europe. We're calling him a one hit wonder because he had one hit in the United States. But we got to give him a little bit of extra credit because he did have one hit here, but it was a hit. Kind of twice, thanks to yeah. Saturday Night Live and A Night at the Roxbury. This song had its moment in 1993. I don't think it, it probably didn't go away from pop radio in those few years. But even if it had, by 1998, when A Night at the Roxbury came out, the song was once again a huge thing. So this song was a staple throughout the 90s. It's almost like one song was a two-hit wonder in a way. Yeah. One of the things I, that I brought up earlier about the lyrics and the melody and, and why I really do like them is there's an acoustic cover of this song by like an indie artist named James Young and he does it very sincerely like it's him plucking the guitar and singing this as if it was like a James Taylor song when you strip away the Euro pop from it and you're just sitting there with the lyrics you're like this isn't a bad song like lyrically it's not a bad song it's definitely like goofishly overproduced at times but like at its core like what the song is saying i'm like you know what this could have been like the love anthem of a rom-com in 1998 you know what i mean like like with the right artist covering it i could see like you know meg ryan and tom hanks walking off into the sunset with this song playing in the back so what is right what is wrong give me a sign what is love baby don't hurt me baby don't hurt me no more what is love baby don't hurt me baby don't hurt me The I want no other, no other lover. This is our life and our time. If we are together, I need you forever. And is that love? And then it goes into the, like, which also is the verse that I would say points to his answering of what is love. 
I mean, to the point of it being, of his voice being like, you're comparing him to Bowie and to Seal, of him having this rock voice. I saw an interview where he says he calls himself an old school rocker. And, you know, he was citing all these, everything from the Rolling Stones to just all this rock music that he really likes. He comes from rock music. And what he said about the style of this song and the style of his music in general was that he knew that he couldn't compete with Michael Jackson or the police or Prince. So he found something, a certain something that could be his. And that was like club dance music he made that his he's very humble i think he's awesome i think his voice is cool i think he's a talented guy he's very humble about his own ability though and he's right like when you're looking at michael jackson or prince or somebody like those are the kind of people when you watch them where you're like oh i want to quit music forever (laughs) you know so so he knew he knew he had a place he could fit he knew there was a niche where he could fit and he found it i think that's pretty cool he found his place yeah, he definitely was a his voice. Once again, he he was distinct. Like he can't compete once again with Michael. By the time he came in, Michael was Michael. You yeah. know, <laughs> like he was the he was that guy. But like you said, he he found this niche. I did see that interview, and that was a good interview. It was like a, he was like in a coffee shop. Yeah, it was it yeah. was he was and he was humble. He was really humble because, I mean, a man can really sing. Yeah. You know, uh, one thing that takes away from it's funny because Matt was talking about that, the over the topness of the production, which I like. I like the production a lot. But when you watch that video, man, yeah. he, he's yeah. leaping on on the, uh, by the glass and he's like popping, dancing and the girl's popping. Then she bite him. He become a vampire. <laughs> like yeah. and one thing that bugged me out is I'm l- looking at his other music videos and it literally looked like they said, OK, cut and then they go to the next scene and he got the same clothes on he looked like blade and like for his videos like literally (laughs) look like blade (laughs) yeah yeah, his music videos are ridiculous i will say that he looks incredible in them i didn't the one i saw i think it was for this song life which was another like kind of big (laughs) hit for him but he's dressed in this like awesome white suit, no shirt under it. He's jacked. He has a mm-hmm. he has a cane like uh, kind of like the dude from Fishbone. And I at one point he dumps a giant bowl of milk on his like ripped chest and abs, and then they put it <laughs> they put it in reverse, and the milk goes back into the bowl. It's just like everything, every cliche thing that you would expect from like a pumping party club anthem of the '90s is in this video, and it's just. It's hilarious, but it's also awesome. You know, like I, yeah. I get it. And it's like that those images you're t- that you're talking about. Yeah. From the what is love video. It's perfect. It matches the yeah. song. What else is it going to be? You know, yeah, that's true. That interview with him. He's now in his 50s. He's 56 years old. I think he still mm-hmm. looks amazing. You know, I yeah. watched a, a performance of him from 2019 and it was a very weird performance it was it was him performing it like kind of like some sort of 90s throwback event i think it was in germany he's very popular in germany he's got a real hasselhoff thing going on he was walking among a very old white crowd where people were kind of like kind of moving to the beat some people were sitting there completely stationary in their seats a large blonde man danced real passionately among a bunch of other seated people a small chubby child sang into the mic at one point and he let the child Uh, sing into the mic at one point it was an awkward performance i don't think that was his his (laughs) wheelhouse but i'd imagine if this dude went into a club of sweaty 20 year olds and 
and performed this song that people would lose their minds. You know, I don't of think he course. necessarily had to be performing at this 90s throwback event. But what do I know about Hathaway's career? Of course. Career? Yes, I I 100% agree. Like kids to this day, like that's that song stands the test of time. You can you can literally put that anywhere. You could yep. play that in the hood and you're going to see people in the street like, <laughs> hey, 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 yeah. and they're going to go crazy because it is what it is. Even Eminem yeah. used a sample and he used he sampled them. And yeah. that was epic. He, even I saw in the interview, Hathaway talks about that. He's <laughs> like, you know. I don't like Eminem's profanity, but he's a smart guy. <laughs> Dude, I, I wrote down the exact quote from that interview. He said, don't be fooled by the bad words. This guy is intelligent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it had that much of an impact that, yeah, in 2010, Eminem, Eminem on a song with Lil Wayne is sampling What is Love. And, and it's a very strange sample of the song. I may have not even recognized it at first they definitely chop it up a good bit but that's cool hey the what i can't believe isn't sampled more if we're talking about the music of this song that background i wanted to find i should have looked up who that background vocalist is the woman singing in the song because that oh, oh yes oh, oh, that is to me i i mean all of it's great but that mm-hmm. to me is the catchiest part that once it hits that, that post chorus of that whoa from that female voice oh man that's oh when my god powerful right yeah, yeah. And she's like weaving in and out of the beat even when she does the ooh, ooh, yeah. and then he goes in nah, 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 and yeah. then he goes back in there man yeah that that song is just it's magic man it, the other ones are really good but and they're just as good but that one is so much weight on it it's like layers and layers and layers like it's just not a pumping beat you hear like the soulful lady in the background like and if you don't pay attention it's like she's subconsciously singing in your mind like she's harmonizing all right so i just looked it up the female vocal on the track was a stock sample that was released on zero g's sample compilation cd data file one which was produced by Zero G co-founder and Jack and Chill member Ed Stratton, a.k.a. Man Machine, and was aimed at dance producers, DJs, programmers, and artists. So the answer to that question, Chris, is no one knows. It was literally just a stock vocal on a compilation that they sent out to DJs of things they could sample for beats. Wow. Wow. Well, the lady was soulful regardless of, you know, when she was tracking (laughs) that, it is soulful. And I think... That's what cuts through on this. I feel like a lot of dance music can get a little soulless or something. It's just mm-hmm. this beat and it's like, I, I don't know, but there is b- between Hathaway's vocals and that sample, there is a soul behind the club beat of this song. And, and, and you're right. I think this song could have, you know, transferred over to any style of music you're right the the melodies are strong i don't know i didn't expect to like this song so much looking back on it i feel like it's always been there it's always been there as background and goofy movies and at the store and stuff like Mm -hmm. and i never paid attention to it but i'm like yeah this is good this is actually a really good song like it kind of won me over i know 
that the song once again also in 2008 was used in a Super Bowl commercial for Pepsi Max that had LL Cool J, Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, but Hadaway himself was not in it. <laughs> Poor Hadaway. <laughs> and I think like you're saying all of that stuff that makes this work, I think the fact that Hadaway did want to be a producer over being a singer helps. You know what I mean? Like it definitely helps in the sense of like it is capturing that that producer influence from the artist's perspective. Because God knows from listening to, you know, another podcast that you work on, Krista Makes, like a good producer can make a mediocre song good and a good song great. But if you're going in there with an artist who also has that producer mind working with two other producers, I mean, how can't the combination be like magical? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, to that point, if you're coming at writing a song as wanting to be a producer and not necessarily an artist, then you have nothing to think about except the, the song itself. When you're an artist, you're thinking about so many other things. You're thinking about the way you look. You're thinking about how am I going to promote this thing? You're thinking about just there, there's so many factors in becoming a popular artist. But if you're a producer, all you have to focus on is making that song sound as great as it can sound and be as good as it can be. You're not that you don't have to think about anything before or after or any image or anything like, yeah, a lot of producers don't look like some famous person. Look at Rick Rubin, you know, look <laughs> at these people that like, they're just either completely normal and boring looking or ridiculous looking or, you know, or old, you know, and yeah. you know, so maybe that's a, that's a good point, Matt, that him coming at this song when he was writing this song. Yeah. They knew he was going to be the artist that kind of pushed him to do that, but he's still coming at it from the producer standpoint. And also I thought this was funny. I don't know if you guys saw this, but whoever he was working on, on this song, they first wanted him to track the vocals trying to sound like Joe Cocker, which is really yeah. funny because I can't picture that. And he was just like, no, I can't do a Joe Cocker voice. I don't see how a Joe, like a raspy Joe Cocker, like, what would you do <laughs> <No>. kind <laughs> of voice fits in this song at all. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah, he got that raspy. And then Joe Cocker got that you got to drag his vocals. This beat is too fast. I can't even yeah. imagine somebody trying to sound like him with this high speed tempo. And it goes and to go back with what you're saying. Yeah. Like usually a producer looks, you know, I'm a big fan of Rick Rubin, but Rick Rubin looks homeless, you know? Yeah. So he's <laughs> like, he looks like he's completely over somewhere else. I mean, Hadaway looked like he did a thousand crunches before he got in the studio. <laughs> and was like, okay, let's do it. Take his shirt off and just start singing and dancing. Like yeah. I, when I hear that song, I only imagine him dancing while he's singing a song. He might not have just been dancing, but I can't picture him just staying still. Well, and I think that an element of that is beyond being a producer. Like one of the other things that I learned when I was doing the research for him was that, you know, he he moved to Germany, dropped out of medical school, moved to Germany, started working at bars, but he then formed a company called Energy that was all about putting together like fashion shows and photo shoots and stuff like that. So I think that there's also that discipline of like you're working in an industry where you're photographing people who look good. You can't be walking in there looking homeless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Like, and that's, that's cool because you saying that it's kind of like it was preordained, you yeah. know, cause it, physically you just gave the physical aspect, but this guy worked in 
he's he has a producer mind state. He works at a bar. He did photo shoots. So it was kind of like his music is designed around fashion shows. You could hear this song things. playing in a photo shoot. Everything. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like as they're like getting the models ready and they have everything set up. Like this is the sound of them yelling things at them to pose as. Yeah, like, and even yeah. walking down the aisle. You know, walking down the aisle, you hear the music, and he had that producer ear where he worked in a bar who's was kind of like a club, and then he worked here, he worked there, and with the producer ear, he perfectly constructed and arranged a sound. Like, it's a difference in being, once again, like you said, it's a difference in being a, a artist and you're just freely expressing and then you're a producer who has to take an artist role arranging and constructing it's different like it's artists who have a producer mind state where they know to construct a song and then you have people who just throw it out and it just sounds never ending this song sounds like it's constructed from beginning to end but it can still, you can play it whenever, but you know you know when it's going to stop. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaking microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that, uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. It's not like it's a, a old uh, Genesis or progressive rock where, you know, Kansas, where it's going to be super long and it's like 10 minutes. This is constructed from the, the, the drum patterns to how he fades in and out, how they even put that sample. Oh, it's literally a, a construction of, of a producer's ear where he's like, we're specifically going to do it this way. It's not going to go no further we're going to have them hard hits and this lady weaving in and out. It's, it's, it's a producer constructed song. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And it's funny how this guy's life journey led him to a point where like, yeah, this dude was destined to have a hit. Like we're talking about he's in good shape. He's a good looking guy. He's got this soulful, cool voice. Just touching on that Joe Cocker thing one more time. This guy's voice is 
the polar opposite of Joe Cocker. It's like very rich and smooth. And yeah, you compared him to Seal. Like, yeah, I hear that in his voice. Why would you try to get this guy? This guy is not going to sing a song and sound like he smokes four packs a day. You know, he's got that. That's not him at all. You know, so he's fashionable. He worked in that industry. So he's just like a perfect storm of all these things. It just it makes sense. It makes sense that this would be a hit and this guy would have this career in this style, too. I got a question for the two of you because my first exposure to this song was through SNL, like from the, the Roxbury skits. Do you guys have any favorite moments or particular celebrity guests in the Roxbury skit history? I think they did like 30 of them. Jeez. I don't even remember personally like who the guests were. I was going to talk to you guys about, about A, was that sketch funny? And and like, was it so funny that it deserved an entire movie? I was trying to figure that out. Like, I loved it. You loved it? The movie, I think, is really funny. I did not understand at the time when they announced it. I'm like, really, that one? I'm not saying I don't think it's funny. I'm just saying that like, it seems like there's a formula to it, to everything is they're dancing to this song. They're bobbing their heads to this song. They're confused about which woman, well, which one of them the woman is interested in, right? Is this, mm. is this the formula? Yeah, yeah. The woman comes up, they eventually dance so hard that she like falls over, right? <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is this the formula of, of what's yep, going on? That's pretty much all. Was, I love it. I think the, the bit, the bit with the celebrities was usually they would bring in the different guests and they would constantly having them like, like the idea was that they were club hopping. So they'd bounce to these different locations. And usually the joke of the sketch was that like each location got more and more and more pathetic until they're like dancing at like an Italian, like at an olive garden. Like it's just yeah, like, I loved it. Yeah. But the one that I always remember, I think it was Jim Carrey was there's a shot where they're in the car <laughs> and they're bopping their heads in the car and all of a sudden, the record starts to skip, and they all stop. And he's like, "Quick, eject!" <laughs> eject the CD, and they hold it up. And Jim Carrey in the back seat just leans up and lightly blows on it, and then they pop it back in the CD player, and it starts again. And they go back to bopping their heads. And like that little like five second clip has lived rent free in my brain for about twenty five years. <laughs> I guess I guess it's pretty funny. I, 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 it captures I, time, Eric. You know, it's people who. Uh, like us, where we are standing from the outside and we're looking at people like the characters that Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan plays, and you're like, yo, that guy is over the top, man. Why is he dre They are real. They are depicting real people in that moment. I seen people. I would go to like Wildwood and it'd be late, and I see the people going in the club, the little club, and they look ridiculous and then even like it's the little parts where i think in the movie he's like they both look at each other and they're like emilio estevez emilio, like yeah like, they're both telling, uh, they're flirting with two different girls and they're telling the exact same story of being at a club and seeing emilio estevez like who would be excited to see emilio <laughs> nothing against him he, i mean he did good movies but I, that would be the last thing i would think somebody would be like like if somebody said hey yeah i saw you know uh I don't know at that time, Lenny Kravitz or Johnny Depp. He says Emilio Estevez. Like, and it's people who are really ridiculous like that. I mean, yep. they, they still exist in this time. They just don't dress like that no more. <laughs> right. I had an experience like this, and this was in, I think it was when we were recording in the LA area. And for some reason, one night decided to go to one of these types of 
bars or clubs, you know, like a swanky place where like the dance music is playing really out of mine and my friends and bandmates element. But we just went there. It was like somebody (laughs) took us there, you know? And the one thing I'll always remember about it is there was a guy, he was probably 50 and he was in an all velour suit like you guys know what velour is like they yeah, make the yeah. sweatsuits it was like a purple velour suit he was a little bit intimidating looking to me but he came up and he told me he said hey will you get me a drink if you get me a drink i'll give you some weed and i was like i didn't really care about the weed but i was a little bit intimidated by him or something like i was really out of my element and i'm like uh yeah sure get, get this guy a drink or whatever he ordered the most expensive drink <laughs> that you could that you could possibly order. I think it was eighteen dollar drink when Jesus. I got the bill, and then disappeared. Never saw him again. I mean, I didn't. I probably wouldn't have even smoked the weed that this guy gave me. But, yeah, no. but, uh, but it probably wasn't eighteen dollars worthy weed either. Yeah. <laughs> regardless, it was. It was. Uh, I'll never forget that guy. He was. He had like kind of spiky blonde hair and just this velour. <laughs> I was just intimidated by the way he just fit into this club and told me to buy him a drink. He was so convincing. He used like a Jedi mind trick on me or something like buy me an $18 drink or fear. There was a guy in college. My friends had convinced me that every Thursday night I should go to Barnaby's with them because it was college singles night. And they're like, you know, just go. And like, I am an awkward man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and being in a crowded bar as the sober guy wasn't fixing that at all. But one of the things I remembered about college singles night at Barnaby's was one specific 50-year-old man who was there every single week who looked like a Dick Tracy villain. Like he looked like a Dick Tracy villain that would have had a name like The Rat. Like just like <laughs> long nose, like real like barely there mustache, short dude, bald and he would just walk up to a girl and just kind of night at the Roxbury dance next to them. <laughs> and then eventually the girl would turn around and give him a look and he would do the like two hands in the air, like, oops, my bad. And like Still move over go. to the next girl <laughs> and that until eventually he was kicked out of the club every single week. Living that Roxbury life. That's what you got. Yeah, <laughs> one thing I got to always give props to. And it's funny because they look ridiculous, but it's people out there that, that like you said, would dance up on a chick. And instead of them walking away and feeling bad, they still walk away in style. Like they're just backing yeah. up like, oh, OK. Uh, and then the next chick, like the persistence is is godlike. Like, yeah. how do you I'm a regular guy. If, if I go up to try to dance with a chick, which probably wouldn't happen, I would walk away like, oh, man. All right. Let me just sit down by the bar. He he put his hands up, did like a pause move like it was still a dance move. The hands up was like, whoa, I surrender. OK, let's go back. Woo, and then find somebody else. I envy that sort of confidence. And you like you're saying, I think all three of us are probably in that boat. That feeling of rejection. I need some recovery time. My recovery time would be a long time. Like if I worked up the courage to walk up to a girl and 
whatever that thing is, ask her to dance or ask her out or something and get rejected. It might take me weeks, <laughs> but, <laughs> but these kind of guys that can just be like, all right, I'm moving on to the next one, you know, like, <laughs> and part of that might be a little bit of liquid courage. You know, I'm sure that, you know, if, if you have enough drinks that maybe you don't care, but uh, yeah, you don't want to creep anybody out that we're not saying mm. that, but yeah. you know, mm. there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with asking someone to dance or going up and trying, you know, dancing next to somebody until, you know, I'm not saying grind on them, but I'm saying like no. dance next to them <laughs> and maybe you're feeling each other a little bit. That's, that's a whole other thing, but that is like a godlike level of, of confidence and not giving a fuck. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Br- bringing it back to Hathaway a little bit. I'm looking at what else when Hathaway was in the charts and the song peaked at number 11, which it's surprising it only went to number 11. I think maybe it was in uh, preceding years that it got more and more, I don't know, legendary of a song or something, but it peaked at number 11 on October 30th of 1993. Oh, wow. Almost Halloween time. Devil's Night. But uh, <laughs> at that time, the number one song was Dream Lover by Mariah Carey. Also on the charts, as we cited earlier in this episode, number two was I Would Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That by Meatloaf. Wow. All That She Wants by Ace of Bass was number three. The River of Dreams by Billy Joel was number five. Whoop, There It Is by Tag Team, which has had its resurgence lately, uh, was at number seven. And again, oh, such a good Janet Jackson song was number nine at that time. So there are some wow. there are some songs that have really stood the test of time in the charts at that time. Whoop, there it is. I saw a funny thing. I mean, obviously, you guys have seen the... Is that a Geico? Com- What's that a commercial? I don't remember. Yeah. I, was thinking, I was talking about this with someone else the other day. I know that there's commercials I like. I can't tell you what they're selling anymore but i think it's a geico i think it seems like it would be an ice cream commercial but i think it's a geico commercial that yeah. i saw a funny tiktok of people i'm sure that it was doctored video but it was people like throwing stuff through their tv because they always show that that commercial on the football <laughs> games and it's like this is what happens when that commercial comes on your team's getting getting destroyed is like people like breaking their tvs when that commercial comes on but oh, uh, yeah that uh you know there's a lot going on a lot of songs that we all still know today i mean that year the best-selling single was that me me love i do anything for love but i won't do that was the biggest single of the year it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, when we were talking about how labels push. That's extremely impressive for Hathaway, who was with a label called Coconut. It was a European label. Yeah. You know, and he got it. He got to 11 with some of these songs, which I think like you just were shocked that Meatloaf was number one, you know, and Meatloaf is great. But that track list, that's very that song is very odd with the names that you just named of the songs, you know, for that to be that high, you know, it, but it all goes back to label push. It goes back to, you just named star power. You know, he, he didn't have that behind him. And for him to get to 11 with a European label and not the, the power that these people have, that's, that's big. And here's the thing you have to think about. I know you're kind of confused by why meatloaf was the number one song, but I, I kind of get it. Right. Because we always have to like remind ourselves of a few things. First of all, 1993, I I always think of it this way. When we were kids in 1993, we were buying albums. We were going out and we were like, if we were into Nirvana, we were buying in utero. We were going to buy Stone Temple Pilots. So because of that, I don't think the single sales 
for those artists were nearly as strong as someone like Meatloaf, where like our parents who weren't going to go out and buy Bad Out of Hell 2, but they were kind of into this song that was kind of a big hit. They're going to go out and buy that single because it's like a $4 single. They know they're not going to listen to the other like 10 songs on that CD. They really just want that one. And I think that that's why like when you look at the singles charts, I feel like you always have to think this is not representing the teenagers at all. This is representing the 30, 30, 40 year old crowd at that time. And like the 10 and under crowd, like those are like the people who are buying the individual singles versus like that 12 to 30 range. where like, we're the album people like we like, especially in the nineties. Yeah. I think it's impressive to the point about the coconut records <laughs> that this song at the time was written to try to save the label and studio because to be able to pay the bills to even pay the bills and then this song became it sold 30 million singles and the, and the album itself wow. sold close to 3 million that's a real rags to riches story for uh and hadaway a lot it's a lot of people that owe a lot to hadaway i think oh, <laughs> in, yeah. in this story easy and and it goes back once again back to the meatloaf you know and that would make sense i mean meatloaf the label power this man had a history since with rock since the 70s you know so to battle with that i mean that's impressive i mean i could see why he would be number one now you know just thinking about it he's been in the game for so long i mean he was almost kind of he had like a reborn with i'll do anything for love because nobody was really checking for meatloaf you know at at some point you know so when he did that it was like oh he's back it's like his his tina turner moment like tina turner fell off and then what's love got to do with it i was just looking at uh that documentary which was really good like a few months back and i'm like when the movie came out it was the 90s but when what love got to do with it the song it was like 1980 i'm like it was just that resurgence and i thought i because i wasn't born yet what's love got to do with the single i thought that was like the 90s you know because Mm -hmm. it was pushed for so long and that was like her resurgence and that was like meatloaf meatloaf's resurgence was his what's love got to do with it was i'll do anything for love you know so everybody was like oh he's back he's back and then you got the the crowd that grew up with him and then you had new people who looked at him as if he was a new artist and now the parents can say hey i'm putting you on yeah meatloaf is mine i'm cool you know i'm the cool person and then everybody goes to his concerts but that's still impressive that Hadaway stood you you named what Janet Jackson Mariah Carey you named some titans man and we we, you and it goes back to what you said coconut records was crumbling like it wasn't we wouldn't know what coconut coconut records still sounds goofy right now like yeah yeah I mean it would be like if that it and that is especially impressive that's a great point about Look what's in the charts. It's Mariah Carey and Janet Jackson. We're talking about the titans of pop music at that time. Mm. And even now, still today, these are people that are still still popular. Yeah. And that'd be like if you and I today were like, man, we're, we're backs against the wall. We need to go make a song on a shoestring budget. Make a song and it blows up. And now we're in the charts with... I don't know, uh, BTS and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. whoever else is is up there. It's it's an impressive story. And that's why, you know, we got to we got to make this decision. 
And usually I go last on this, but I'm going to go first on it today and say between giving Hathaway the one hit thunder seal of approval or calling it a one hit blunder, I'm saying this dude is pure thunder. And I, I and from our conversation, I, I think that you guys are probably going to agree with me, right? Oh, 100% he brought the thunder. I, I want to bring up one more thing about the singles just because it just clicked in my head that what I was talking about, like who was buying singles versus who was buying albums, right? We're talking about all these heavy hitters that Hadaway was standing amongst at number 11 on the charts with like the Mariah Carey's and the Janet Jackson's and the Billy Joel's and, and so on. But then when you look at what the singles of that year were, like, yeah, Meatloaf, I'll Do Anything for Love. I know you love them to death, but like UB40 can't help falling in love with you. Like, not really a band known as an album group. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Four non-blondes, what's up? Coming soon to the feed, I'm sure. And Snow and Former also coming soon <laughs> to, the, to the feed. Like, there, you can see the divide on like, who is buying the Four non-blondes album versus buying the single and who is like, this Janet Jackson again song is great. I'm going to pick up the whole album by Janet Jackson. <laughs> yeah, the singles charts really were a who's who of one hit wonders. And it makes sense because people are just buying for the one song as opposed to the album. Definitely makes sense. That's a good point, Matt. Real quick over here, the the OG Reaper dropping some hot tracks. Where can people go and check out some of the songs that you've been putting out? You can go to YouTube. Um, it's MC Samson. E-M-C-E-E-E-S-A-M-S-O-N. You type that in and I have a whole catalog. I just dropped a new uh, track. It's called Oliver. I'm dropping an EP um, in October, beginning October. So look out for that. And then I have a project right after it. And it's just a great blend of music. It's hip, a lot of hip hop, a lot of uh, I have trippy psychedelic rock tracks to play guitar. I do everything. And uh, I mean, obviously, we're having you on for an October episode. It's spooky season. So I got to give a shout out to the fact that you did, I think, two different songs about Tales from the Hood, which is just such a good fucking horror movie. So also just a a softball suggestion. Hey, it's October. Go check out Tales Tales from the Hood. It's amazing. Yes, yes, that I love. I love that you you checked that out and you talked about that too. You was like you shared it on um, one on of the your- horror movie night page. Yeah. Oh, dude, I love that. I think that that movie is painfully still relevant. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, great. Oh yeah, you got to check out. You got to check out the OG Reaper songs. Matt sent me a bunch of stuff, dude. So good, so awesome, so unique. Uh, I appreciate and, uh, it. Yeah, Thank man. you. Thanks for coming on today. This was fun. Thank you guys for having me. To the pits of hell, only the strong survive while raising havoc. Lost the prodigy, it's time to kill that sickle cell. Raised in the shadows of the darkness where the pistols dwell. Tell from the hood where kids creep up with the missing shells. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafaios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Tales from the Hood Part 1 by this week's guest, OG Reaper. If you have any interest in podcasting, visit weknowpodcasting.com for how Matt and Chris can make your show sound as professional as possible. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. Tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. Hanging on the ops while kids are by cops. Cops getting suspended, the mom is picking out plots. 
Mob related murder on camera as people watch And the cop got to go home to his kids, dog and wife Ever find it hard to sleep cause them guns spark at night? Pray it don't hit your home, you don't even turn off the lights Like mama said that life is a box of chocolates Till you get a little older and see they scared of your darkness The innocence get lost as you swallow whole by the heartless And they know life matters, colors are walking target nigga You can blame it on America Home of the slaves, the whole world is scared of us We all pawns in the schemes of mass hysteria Shh, martial law slowly creeping in your area I know this making niggas face red Don't of the dead, just that night of the living base head Keep quiet, the fires burn from the riots Enemies wanna storm, but our voices could not be silenced Formulated the plot and put together like science Niggas don't... You're listening to the Geekscape Network Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.